This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. I recently discovered this fascinating documentary called Discordia. It actually came out just under 20 years ago. The doc was produced by the National Film Board of Canada, and it was directed by Ben Edelman and Samir Malal. Their movie is about the Israel-Palestine conflict, but it's about how that conflict plays out in a land quite far away, Montreal, Quebec. Ben and Samir follow activists from both sides as they battle it out on the Concordia University campus. And indeed, this was quite a battle. The high point was around this speaking engagement that Benjamin Netanyahu had planned on the campus. Police and protesters clashed, and these events later came to be known as the Concordia Riot. This all happened at the start of the school year in 2002. We'll get into what happened there and why it still matters 20 years on. But first, I want to tell you about why I found this movie so fascinating in the first place. The activists that I saw in Discordia looked incredibly familiar. They looked like me, my friends, and also my enemies. We were all fighting very similar kinds of battles. Only we were doing it eight years later in Vancouver, BC. Back in 2010, I was a young student activist at the University of British Columbia. I was part of a group called the Social Justice Center, or the SJC as we called ourselves. We organized around lots of stuff. Mostly tuition, poverty, globalization, imperialism, policing. It was kind of a mishmash of left-wing causes. And we got money directly from students to support those causes. Anyways, at one of our SJC meetings, a few Palestinian activists showed up. One was named Omar Shaban. Omar was president of a group called Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, or SPHR. These are people who would later become good friends of mine. And in that meeting, they told us about some boats. There were these flotillas of activists heading to Gaza, and the activists planned to defy the Israeli blockade and deliver humanitarian aid. Chants for freedom and the wave of Turkish and Palestinian flags. 
Arabs. You know, the biggest humanitarian convoy ever to set sail to Gaza. After three years of mainly single boat missions, an entire flotilla of nine vessels, the lion's share from Turkey, has been mustered from around the world. As well as an army of more than 750 activists. Omar also told us about 30 Canadian activists who were planning their own boat. They called themselves the Canadian Boat to Gaza. And they wanted to raise $300,000 to make it work. Omar asked SJC if we could pledge something. How about 700 bucks? This wasn't unusual. We actually had a $4,000 budget that was designed to give out little grants to left-wing groups on campus. So sure, why not? This caused an absolute shitstorm. The right-wing student president, Bijan Ahmadian, froze the $700 donation directly against his own bylaws. Bylaws that made the funds of the Social Justice Center autonomous from the student council. Omar went to ask Bijan what's what. Bijan then faked a phone call and buzzed security on him. He later accused Omar of trying to intimidate him. Pro-Israel groups also went on the attack. Hillel and the Israeli Awareness Club went to the SJC's next annual general meeting. They were there to stack the vote and force us all out of the executive. We ended up just dragging our feet till the meeting ran out of time. And this, of course, incensed them. It all got pretty dirty. Later on Facebook, one of their people said, it was a collection of commies, hippies, and an Islamist. And also that raging lesbian was very disrespectful to myself and others. That was the tenor of the debate over those next few weeks. I would get leers in the hall, people spreading lies about me and snitching to my professors about things I had supposedly done or supposedly said. But Omar got the worst of it. Lots of people around campus just called him an anti-Semite. The war over this $700 donation became a war of letter-writing, petitions, and brazen media stunts. Bijan ran this press release saying that he would investigate us all for ties to terrorism, and he actually called CSIS, our spy agency in Canada. We did not appreciate being accused of being terrorists. In response to all this, Noam Chomsky came to our defense in the pages of the UBC, our campus paper. David Frum gave his opinion in the National Post, Canada's premier right-leaning paper. He called us Hamas thugs. But in the end, David Frum's opinion didn't really matter all that much, and neither did Noam Chomsky's. It would all come down to student council. 200 people showed up for a heated debate and a vote. In the end, our side won. Council voted in favor of the donation 26 to 10. This whole affair really energized me and it energized Omar. I ran for vice president of student government. He ran for president. Unfortunately, we both lost. But still, like I said, this was a formative moment. The newspaper came to me afterwards and said, 
All right, you seem like an engaged and an articulate lefty. Why don't you become a regular columnist? I said, sure. Then I started a radio show and a podcast, and, well, here we are today. It all leads back to that boat. But as for the boat, it never actually made it to Gaza. The Israeli Navy intercepted the Canadian boat. Back to the documentary Discordia. Like I said, it had the same kinds of people fighting over the same kinds of things. But what happened in Concordia in 2002, this was a lot more intense than my experience at UBC. There were riot cops involved here. Some Concordia students were arrested and expelled. So if the UBC flotilla gate made me who I am today, Discordia must have been all the more impactful for the people involved. So we tried to track them down. 20 years out, I think it's time for a retrospective. Today on Darts and Letters, we give you Discordia Revisited. I'll speak with the directors and get the inside story about how their movie was made. Then I'll speak to a present-day SPHR activist and ask them what Israel-Palestine activism is like today on university campuses. But first, we revisit the film and the events that led up to it. And we ask, what did it mean for the people involved? Darts and Letters producer Mark Apollonio has the story. After the break... Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. And if you're listening to us for the first time, I would suggest that you consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture, topics I'm sure you have opinions about. If you like what you hear in this episode, go listen to our other episodes. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today to never miss a beat. Back to the show. Darts and Letters producer Mark Apollonio will pick it up from here. At one point in his illustrious career, Henry Kissinger made the observation that the reason that university politics are so vicious is because the stakes are so small. Look, what happened at Concordia University in 2002, the riot surrounding Benjamin Netanyahu's speech, it didn't change anything for the Palestine-Israel conflict. Sadly, that continues unabated, and Netanyahu, he's prime minister all over again, this time with the most hawkish cabinet in Israel's history. So geopolitically, Kissinger was right. The stakes of the Concordia riot were indeed microscopic. But that's not really what's at stake in university politics. The students, they were forging their political identities. They were deciding what matters to them and what kind of people they were going to become. One of those students was Patrick Amar. So my name is Patrick Amar. I'm from Montreal, and I went to Concordia University. The year 2000, when Patrick starts his BA in poli-sci Concordia, is a time when tensions between Jewish and Palestinian activist groups on campus are spiking. And Patrick, he wants to delve in. 
to figure out what the tensions are all about. I was like getting a little more involved in the Jewish community. I was meeting a lot of like Palestinian students or Arab students or even Canadian students who, you know, kind of made Israel-Palestine like the main issue on campus. My name is Rami Wazir. I was a Concordia student. That's one of the Arab students Patrick met on campus. Rami Wazir is Syrian Catholic and a very proud Arab. I was born in Damascus, Syria. I lived in Syria till 2000. That's when we, my whole family, immigrated to Canada. Rami's second language, after Arabic, was French. He started his BA across town at the French language University of Montreal. Shortly after, though, he started hearing exciting things about Concordia. I heard that there's a very active Arabic student body and also like very like left-wing, so all the left-wing associations, you know, that a student would look up for, such as like Amnesty International, you know, Greenpeace, all these guys had a very solid foot at Concordia. I remember like passing by like Maison Neuve all the time and seeing a lot of events, a lot of activities, and I was really drawn to that. From someone who was very politically involved, that was very uh, exciting to me. Rami decided to transfer from the University of Montreal to Concordia, not because of the academics, but because he wanted in on the action. Arriving at Concordia, he links up with Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, or SPHR, a student group that's central to the highly energized political scene on campus. If you're just strolling through Maison Neuve, you'll feel the vibes coming out of the whole buildings. You feel it right away. One of the first days uh, I can remember on campus in the hall building, the main That's building. Eve Engler, the final person I'll introduce you to for this piece. I remember getting this, uh, this leaflet uh, kind of booklet about uh, Palestine. And I you know, knew almost nothing about the Palestinian question. And I remember really clearly like taking it and going to a pizza shop a block or so away, having a slice of pizza and just reading the booklet and being like, wow, this is, this is fascinating. I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. That leaflet that I was given, uh, you know, certainly changed my uh, understanding of that issue and had, you know, a lot of influence on my sort of uh, political uh, trajectory. Eve, he also arrives at Concordia in the year 2000. By 2002, he's a vice president of Concordia's student union which wasn't your average student government. Across Canada, student unions are usually not all that militant. They run student businesses and groups and head up initiatives intended to make life better for students. But Concordia's student union, the CSU, since about 1999, was highly politicized. For example, in 2001, the CSU issued students a pro-Palestinian anti-capitalist daily planner entitled Uprising. To celebrate Canada Day, this handbook suggested burning the Canadian flag. Needless to say, it was controversial both among the student body and throughout the city of Montreal more broadly. So yeah, the CSU was radical, and Eve, he was a good fit. So he joins the CSU executive. Aaron Maté is also on that exec. Over the past few years, there's been a lot of animosity towards the Concordia Student Union and the Arab activists that it's associated with and that it has worked closely with. People say things like the Arab terrorists and the Arab fascists and the Marxist Arabist cabal that runs the Concordia Student Union. Aaron Maté is really the main character of the film, or at least the person I suspect who gets the most screen time. You may recognize him if you're a dedicated darts and letters listener. He's been on the show before. We asked him to join us for this episode, but he declined, saying he was too busy. We had this issue several times. 
Another important character in the film is Samer El Atrash, the vice president of SPHR. I simply wasn't able to find him. And finally, in the movie, the main Hillel representative is its president, Noah Sarna. Today, Noah is a lawyer here in Toronto. He too told me he was simply too busy to join us, but he did help me get in touch with Patrick Amar, who is also in the film. There you have it, a little rundown of the people we could and could not find, in case you were wondering. Back to 2002. There's the Student Union and Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, two organizations that see things similarly when it comes to Palestine. Then you've got Hillel, the Jewish Students Group, an organization that was very vocal in its support of Israel. All three groups, of course, had their own internal tensions with diverse ideas and values among their members. But in the fall of 2002, they're on a collision course. The CSU and SPHR on one side, Hillel on the other. It was like a big, you know, reality check for me and culture shock because, you know, the type of activism that was going on on campus was very hardcore, very serious, you know, trying to take over the student government and university and Concordia to kind of like try to use that as a way to influence public opinion and, and university students, mostly towards the pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel community. And I was like totally wrapped up into it. I mean, I loved it. All this activism in Montreal really intensifies because of what's happening in the Middle East. Palestinians are waging the second intifada. Rami tells me SPHR responds with all sorts of activism, events, and lectures. They bring in high-profile journalists. Patrick tells me SPHR's actions are getting more and more provocative, like putting up mock gravestones in the student center. So Hillel, he says, was getting fed up. They wanted to hit back. The Jewish community kind of wanted to do something to like, you know, splash its power and its authority and bring in also someone, I guess, provocative for many people. And we brought in Benjamin Netanyahu to speak on campus. For anyone not familiar, Benjamin Netanyahu is a massive figure in Israel, a right-wing politician who, over recent decades, has spent more than a dozen years leading the country as prime minister. His policies regarding Palestine, such as continued expansion of Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories, have led him to be seen as a foremost opponent to the Palestinian cause. I'm saying this very clearly. We will never uproot settlements in the land of Israel. It's not only a matter of connection to the homeland, it's not the way to make peace. Eve Engler and the rest of the student union executive were not the only ones wary of Netanyahu's visit. He says Concordia's administration had its own forewarning that it was likely to be a volatile event. The security at Concordia said he shouldn't be speaking downtown. He should speak at the rink that's at the Loyola campus, which is uh, maybe a 15, 20 minute drive uh, to the west outside of uh, downtown, the other campus that Concordia has. But basically, the pro-Israel groups, uh, specifically in this case, it was the uh, Asper Foundation that was the Izzy Asper, who you know, used to own the major papers across the country. They wanted it to be downtown as part of a sort of showing of strength. My point of view was that he has a right to speak, although I disagree with all his politics, but we had a democracy. What I didn't like is the way the events was handled. There was a racial profiling scheme that was put up in place by the Hilal, in which we had to send an email with personal details, probably the name, major, you know, student ID, 
maybe more information. And then based on that, you'll get back an invitation whether you're allowed to attend or no. And that for me was not acceptable because all of us, all the active Arab students were denied access to the event, okay? This is a public funded university. Indeed, Patrick says Hillel did oversee a screening process, but he says it was motivated because pro-Palestinian activists had, in the recent past, disrupted Hillel-sponsored speakers. And Hillel, he said, was gonna do what it could to make sure the statement made with this event was loud and clear. Now, this wasn't done like, you know, in the evening time. It was done, you know, like on a Monday morning at like 9 a.m. while students, you know, were going to school. And here we're going to have about a thousand people gather in the main convention center, the, you know, the, the main auditorium of the university. What ended up happening with Netanyahu was not a, you know, sort of an academic debate. What they ended up wanting was basically an Israel rally, and they announced having, you know, bring your Israeli flag, and, and people who had Arab-sounding names weren't able to get tickets. Protesters from the SBHR and, and other groups and clubs and all around Quebec really came out, and not just Quebec, but all across Canada, really. I mean, this became kind of like a a kind of like Woodstock festival of anti-Israel activism, people just coming from everywhere to take part in this. It was uh, early in the morning. It was one of the first days of school. So first of all, it was going to be a very dynamic day, no, no matter what. The camp, you know, the hall buildings is five, six thousand, seven thousand people. Students go through there every day. Nice warm day, downtown Montreal. I lived like four blocks away from the hall building, walking towards, and you're seeing police on uh, the top of the library building across, just across the street. You already had large numbers rallying in the morning. Thousands of protesters basically encircled the building and, you know, there was a kind of like a way through security to enter the building and we did and we were inside the auditorium. There were about 600 people inside the auditorium. Meanwhile, we're there like waiting for like Netanyahu to be allowed in for his security clearance to go through. And so we're inside the room. We don't really know what's going on outside, but there's thousands of protesters attempting to disrupt and cancel the event. I don't know what the exact numbers were, but certainly a thousand people were rallying outside. I mean, it, it was a little bit hard to tell what, you know, who was a, a protester and who was just a, a student trying to get to class uh, or who were just milling about because it was kind of exciting. Clusters of police and riot gear stand at the ready. Every entrance to the hall building shut down, except for the main doors leading into the Netanyahu event. There's just one way in. Well, so they thought. Suddenly someone said, the Java U door is open. And a bunch of us went there. And next thing you know, a lot of students were able to go down from the Java U to the, to the mezzanine, and then to the main, you know, to the entrance of the, of the hall building. Protesters rush in through a cafe, Java U, which had both an exterior and an interior door, which led into the rest of the hall building. They'd found a way around the police. For those of us who knew the campus, it was not difficult at all to uh, basically get past the security on the on the mezzanine 
And the effect of that was that the people going inside the hall building had to like walk past the escalators that the protesters had had uh, got control over. So we're kind of like above those who are sort of walking into the building. And that that completely freaked out the Montreal police who come inside uh, in significant numbers. Remy was one of those students on the escalators, but he says he was trying to reduce the tension, trying to calm down some of the protesters who were getting too aggressive. Some of them were like pushing and screaming and, you know, and actually it's at that time that I was turning back that the police grabbed me and took me to the floor. And the police start beating people, uh, protesters, and it sort of escalates inside. What they don't, I guess, fully realize that, you know, this is getting the crowd outside more and more angry. And then ultimately there's a, there's a window that's broken from the outside. And the police then kind of like overreact and they claim they only released uh, pepper spray. I thought it was tear gas. At the request of both Mr. Netanyahu's own security and uh, police, uh, this, uh, he will not come here for that. However, eventually we got word that the event was canceled. The security team wouldn't allow for Netanyahu to enter the room. The police tried to kind of, you know, put down the protesters. I'm inside the room, and after they cancel the event, you know, I kind of take the podium and I ask everybody to kind of calm down and show their Jewish pride that we made it here. And even though the event was canceled, we still, you know, the fact that we put on such an event was something to be proud of. Shut out at Concordia, Netanyahu himself talks to the press at Montreal's Ritz-Carlton Hotel. He makes it clear he feels the university shoulders the blame. Bank robbers shouldn't rob banks and rioters should not disrupt a free uh, discussion in the university. And if there is a history in a place like Concordia, then clean it up. I would have liked to attend and ask Netanyahu if you, I had actually a bunch of questions answered for him. Now, probably the time would not have allowed me to answer, to ask all my questions, but at least one or two, like anyone else. That's why I, I was protesting that day, the presence and the way the event was held. My biggest regret is that this point of view never made it to the press. People only said, oh, these are a bunch of, you know, hardcore left-wing folks who don't believe in free speech. We definitely believe in free speech. I mean, we escaped our own societies because we, we want, and we came to Canada looking for that free speech, not to get there and then take it away from other people. The incident quickly becomes an international news story. In Canada, some commentators like media mogul Izzy Asper say the protesters were anti-Semitic. Other critics get behind that free speech point, arguing the protest was an attack on civil liberties. The media said, you know, that these guys know exactly what they want and they went for it and they blocked them. It was the complete opposite. We had so many debates, we didn't know what to do. I mean, even when we went inside from the Java U to the hall to the mezzanine, we had no idea that the Java U would be open. The media, you know, went uh, completely crazy. And, uh, you know, the, the Globe and Mail, one of their headlines was a, a day of broken glass in relation to Kristallnacht, you know, night of broken glass in, in, in Germany, the you know, beginning of, uh, you know, horrible phase of, uh, of anti-Semitism in, in Germany and during Hitler's period. I 
can't say I support every single thing that I saw that day, but overwhelmingly, I remember, you know, these were social justice minded people. There were lots of Palestinians, people who had been, they or their families had been victimized by Netanyahu's policies. Most of the violence that I saw, again, was the Montreal police. So Rami, when he was tackled by police on the elevator, they arrested him. Things changed, obviously, because when I got arrested, the CSU took really good care of me, and that's when I got introduced to everyone. The charges were quickly dropped, and he was let go. But still, for Remy, getting arrested, and the student union then having his back, it was a gateway to even more committed activism. And from there on, my career within the student body went up and up and up and up. There's direct correlation between me getting arrested and then having, later on, a senior role in the association. But before that day, I was just like any other person just coming in on campus to demonstrate against Netanyahu. The Netanyahu incident shocks the university administration. Soon after, the school imposes a controversial moratorium banning activities related to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Activities like public speeches, postering, and information tables. But Eve keeps defying those rules. And one day, when he's handing out leaflets, the school calls in the police. What the police said when they brought me out to their cruiser out front, and they said, uh, the conditions they put on me was that I couldn't go back on campus for 24 hours. I had an exam the next day. And so we then put out a press release saying that the Montreal police with the Concordia administration are blocking an elected student union representative from participating in his exam. And so that gave a bit of a media hook that further embarrassed the uh, university administration. While the students their organizations and the administration are figuring out how to position themselves in the fallout from the Netanyahu event. A Hillel member, Hillel says this member was an intern, causes another controversy. Overseeing an information table, this intern, he posts a sign-up sheet for a volunteer experience with the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. Hillel says the intern did so without permission. But members of SPHR get wind of it and head to the table to confront him. Volunteers needed for IDF, yeah. so you need volunteers to go into Israel Defense Forces. Yeah, lots. You need lots of them. Yeah. And you're promoting it on Concordia campus. Yeah. Okay. So you have a problem with that? I think Hillel's going to be the hell. Start asking around, guys, what's happening? What's the story? They said that Hillel are recruiting for the IDF. And I was like, are, are they out of their minds? I mean, who, who would do such a thing, you know? There's a lot of programs. Here, let me show you. If, they, if these guys it's recruited Jewish. for Hamas or Hezbollah, you'd be screaming blue murder. The student union in response, it comes up with a plan to suspend Hillel's status as a student group. They hold a vote. In other businesses like that, an emergency motion resulting from materials that were given out by Hillel on November 27th. This vote, it's a pretty high stakes moment. A majority of the lefty student union was in favor of Hillel's suspension, but several members, Eve among them, vote against it. Eve thinks it's a strategic mistake, that Hillel will use it to garner support. But the vote, it passes. Hillel launches a response of its own, a $100,000 lawsuit against the CSU. Rami, to this day, he's not sure whether suspending Hillel was a right response. And Patrick, looking back, he's not sure the IDF volunteer sign-up sheet should have been on that table to begin with. Is it the place to be on the table of a Hillel club on campus? That's the question. You know, does it belong there? That's a good question. Maybe not, you know. Maybe not. I, I, I can understand that. You know, you could find those programs and information outside of the, the space that's dedicated maybe to other things. 
The CSU takes a lot of heat for their decision to suspend Hillel. Tons more media backlash. Eventually, they just relent and reinstate Hillel. But students at Concordia, it's all starting to piss them off. You see it clearly in the movie. Students who aren't involved in the conflict, they just seem annoyed. What do you guys think about the CSU? Oh, oh God. We'll pass. No comments. Uh, well, it's actually time I'm a little sick of uh, CSU politics. I don't want to say anymore. I mean, they keep doing this, and I'm trying to get my education. Because uh, the situation here is worse than ever. It's a disaster. Student union elections are slated every March at Concordia. This time around, a new slate of candidates steps up to topple the lefties. They call themselves Evolution Not Revolution. Among Hillel's members, they're popular. According to Eve, they're essentially a center-left party by mainstream standards, but they run on a platform of tamping down on radical activism within the CSU. Historically, voter turnout was low, at about 10% of the student population. But suddenly this year, a wide array of players, including Concordia's Alumni Association, takes special interest in the election in the hopes of boosting voter turnout. There's literally ads in the Globe Mail, full-page ads in Saturday Globe Mail, about Concordia Student Union elections. It's just like, you know, huge. There's all these things done to like, there was off, prizes were offered. If you voted, you could, you could win a prize. And there was a real push because the, the right wing, their sort of story, with I think a certain degree of truth to it, uh, was that the more people voted, the less likely the left-wing radicals would win a student election. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And if you watch the doc... You can see it was a good strategy. Clean slate, 1,097 votes. Evolution by revolution, 2,200. Reports from that year say voter turnout doubled. Evolution not revolution won by a landslide, taking nearly two-thirds of the vote. Then a year later, the world of Concordia student politics already much less turbulent. Evolution not revolution wins again. So, at the end of that tumultuous era at Concordia, what's the takeaway? A strength of the documentary is that there'll be as many opinions about what it all means as there are people who watch it. The radical activist left was knocked from its position at the head of the CSU. That's tangible. But like other elected bodies, things change. And in the years since, there have been plenty of lefty activists back on the CSU exec. And I'm told by current and former activists at Concordia, the Palestinian solidarity, among other movements, remains strong. And so does Hillel. I guess what we can say is that for the people involved, the stakes were high. For the ones I talked to, it changed the course of their lives. I look fondly on my years at Concordia, and uh, I wish it to everyone to go to that university, to, to go through that experience again. Honestly, these were like, I would say, my best years. Rami, he now lives in France and works for an American company that makes virtual reality software. Not that long ago, he was working for a holiday planning company that catered to the very wealthy. 
So career-wise, he's not doing too badly. I asked him if his activist peers from his Concordia days would judge him now for selling out. No, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, a lot of us have very good careers right now and we're doing quite well, especially on the left side. We still support the cause, you know, in different ways. So, no, I don't think anyone would, uh, maybe some extreme leftists would look back and say, oh, this guy sold out. But honestly, I wouldn't care at this point of that opinion. Patrick, he's doubled down on his love for Israel. He lives there now and works as a guide, taking people, usually tourists, sometimes journalists, all over the country. Here I am living in Israel. Many of my colleagues and friends from campus also either, you know, moved to Israel or worked in the Jewish community or kind of found their voice when it came to Israel and where that fits into our own lives, you know? And a lot of people like kind of continued in that track of life of like, okay, so where are you going to take this now? For me personally, it was a success. I found, you know, kind of my calling in life. And Eve, I should mention, he was eventually kicked out of Concordia for continuing to break the conditions of his initial suspension. Also, another student at the Netanyahu event accused him of assault. And a university tribunal found him guilty. Though to this day, Eve says that assault never happened. Anyway, he's still in the trenches as an activist. In fact, on his Twitter feed, you'll find videos of him disrupting events, usually related to Canadian foreign policy and militarism. God, Mr. Kotler, you say you support human rights, but you support the And he's written books on these topics, a dozen. Books like Stand on Guard for Whom, A People's History of the Canadian Military, and House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy. He too credits his experience from that period at Concordia for where he is today and for offering him an unconventional route into his career as a writer. I, I was pushed out of a lot of the job market because I would have been, um, you know, to some extent I could have been, you know, tagged as a, you know, radical or dissident and, and the expulsion of the university would have, you know, contributed to that. But it ultimately, it just actually kind of helped me in terms of my pathway in writing. Who knows if others involved in that turbulent period feel the same way? Maybe it's no surprise that the three people who are up for revisiting it in an interview are the ones who have positive feelings about it. I tried to get in touch with all the main players featured in Discordia. Some declined because they were tied up with other commitments, others I couldn't find, or they just never responded. But I'd guess for all of them, the period left its mark. That was Darts and Letters producer Mark Epilonio. You also heard Patrick Amar, Eve Engler, and Rami Wazir. And of course, you heard clips from the film Discordia. That was directed by Ben Edelman and Samir Malal. If you want to watch the film, it streams free from the National Film Board of Canada. I will put a link on our show page. The story behind Discordia is actually pretty interesting. Ben Edelman and Samir Malal are both well-established Canadian documentarians, but they weren't then. They were very young, fresh out of school, in fact. So while you're watching the film, you see activists on screen trying to figure things out 
learn to be the people that they would eventually become. That very same thing was happening behind the camera. Samir and Ben, welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm so excited to uh, speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you. What's it like going through this sort of like nostalgia trip through time to not just something you made a long time ago, but this is your first feature length documentary. When we first called you up, what was your thought? I was kind of like, how come no one else is doing this? Half kidding, but I mean, it's Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be prime minister again. That's true. Back then, he was out in the like political wilderness, right? Like he was like a kind of fringe character, sort of doing a speaking tour, you know? Like he wasn't like, and a lot of the same ways that people speak to each other, the same sort of dynamics are at play. So sort of ahead of its time, at least thematically, I think. I think all of that uh, I agree with, but I also see it like we made that film basically as student. We were both just pretty much out of school, you know? Yeah, total amateurs. Mm-hmm. You could see the relationship between us and everybody in the film. It's it's like they're talking to their peers. We could never do that now, right? We're <laughs> It would never work. So I think when I watch it now, in a sense, it sort of holds up for me because it's not trying to be uber cinematic or really trying to be very much it's just we were learning on the fly as well so you can sense that innocence almost in the characters but also in us as storytellers which for me I I love that because it takes me back to that and and doing things for the first time and I think that ended up being part of the film right is just our point of view as well which is somewhat naive somewhat wide-eyed and you kind of see that in the way that it's executed and also like like Sam was saying what takes me back to is just like the time that we had. We would just like wake up every day and kind of head down to like Concordia University, you know, and just basically spend most of the day there. And sometimes like the night there, like all the time. Yeah, it's amazing that kind of fly on the wall. I love the the intimate scenes that you have, even with like family members of the students and going to pick them up from prison. Yeah, and there's a bit of humor too. Like our voices kind of, we kind of joke around with people and like, it either works as humor or as like, you know, the, the scene where Aaron finally loses at the end. There's a little kind of like back and forth mm-hmm. between one of us. And like, it's kind of feels like a couple people actually chatting. What did the students um, think of you? Like you knew these folks and uh, you're, you're hanging around for like six weeks as like a fly in the wall. Do they kind of just forget about you eventually? Or like, what do they think about your, your presence? We got kind of close with them in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Sam especially with like Sam and Aaron were already kind of friends in a way. Um, but we definitely kind of treat us like peers. I mean, we'd sort of go out with them. Yeah, we would go and get drunk together. Sometimes the cameras would be around for that kind of stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, I mean, we definitely got a lot of people, even when we didn't go out with them, saying things, not like catching them saying things, but sort of being looser with some of the things that they would say. Like some of that sort of like, young trying to figure it out kind of things mm-hmm. you know like even people just being like i don't understand why the other side is so this and this and that like almost so, they were on kind of innocent in a way too which is also why everyone a lot of this subject can be very off-putting to people but i don't think anyone really comes across that way in the film because you can kind of see them trying to figure things out and have a bit of youthful naivete going on too and you can you can sort of see that happening Rather than like formal interviews, I mean, we do have formal interviews, but they don't, I don't see them as sort of the best part of the film, actually. Mm. You probably agree with that too, eh, Sam. The formal interviews kind of worked. 
I remember shooting those. It was like, <laughs> talk about not knowing what we were doing. <laughs> we thought we had to like have, shoot them in a dark room and put the camera way back to have depth. It was like, it, it was a ridiculous <laughs> setup. <laughs> but I guess they work kind of, but like the, the little kind of offhand comments and moments are definitely what makes the film. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Did anyone have a sense that this is like being recorded for posterity in a set like this is going to be this document that we can I mean it's not it's on the NFB right it's not a piece that the student paper is doing or something like that I mean did they have a sense of what this might mean good question I think it develops right yeah I I would say everybody sort of thought it was just this small thing and then it got it became a lot bigger than everybody thought you know when we because we were part of this human rights watch film festival or anything I think that really works out for everything for any you know, it's a good thing a lot of the time for like a fly on the wall documentary that people don't think it's going to turn into anything because then they're less self-conscious about what they're saying, right? Like Ben was just talking about. You were asking, you know, were they affected by us? It's a sort of a tree falls in the forest type situation. It's sort of like, I think that there were times when the fact that there was a camera there, this is pre-smartphone, that did sort of influence some of the events sometimes. Other times, people just forgot it was there, and we filmed things that they would have rather not, you know, been filmed, like arguments, like between Jaggi and Aaron, I remember, you know, that kind of stuff, which was got quite heated. And those were private moments, but they just sort of forgot about it because we were just always, always there. And there wasn't a distinction between, like, we would just be hanging out, like, literally just sitting around. We're just talking. And then we kind of like, okay, press record kind of thing without even moving the camera up to our face. A lot of it's, you know, from the hip. Like, literally, literally kind of from the hip. Yeah, (laughs) it is, which is not how we'd film now. Now we're both professional filmmakers, so we would never do that now necessarily. But it's a lot of it feels like it's almost hidden camera or something like that because it's sort of like from like a sort of low angle. And there's a big distinction between like the media and like us at the time. I think that that line is a lot blurrier now. The media was kind of part of our story and how these kids kind of got wrapped up in this sort of media story that was playing out and, you know, screwed over by it sometimes. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they'd like, they were trying to manipulate the media, but then this, they would kind of get this wall of kind of press or bad press or good press. And they were trying to work that angle too in an innocent kind of way. And that leads me to wonder like how, with you on the inside, when you stepped outside and read what the mainstream press was saying or what you know, people were saying at the parties you went to, what were you seeing that other people weren't seeing? Like, what was the difference between how people talked about it generally in Montreal and how, what it was like at Concordia? To me, like, the what's the name of that professor who's got great quotes in the film, who was also our teacher? To me, he kind of summed it up the best. Um, fuck, what was that guy's name, Sam? That guy, uh, remember the uh, the guy with glasses? He, he wasn't a professor anymore by the time we interviewed him. Dennis... Um, Dennis, right, Dennis right, Miller? Um, yes, no, not Dennis, Dennis Miller. Dennis... But to he, but he was he said a lot of things about like how these sort of kids are playing out sort of like foreign mm-hmm. conflicts here on in this sort of Canadian context in kind of like a safe, relatively safe kind of way without the sort of like the risk of actual physical harm. He also said that it's not that foreign for these students because of how diverse they are. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. other the dynamic to it, too. And saying that this is sort of a relatively new thing. And I guess it's sort of the beginning of like that identity politics type of way of looking at the world, which is another reason why, like, it's sort of addressing themes that are a bit ahead of its time, I think. So, yeah. So what people did not get was that, like, they were basically kids working out ideas 
they were shouldn't be responsible for these, you know, big geopolitical events, and they weren't, but they were being treated a bit like they were. We tried really hard to be, it seems naive also to like, neutral is not the right word, but we made a big effort and talked about this a lot, how we wanted something that didn't sort of put one side or the other off. And this is a very tricky subject that everybody knows, like ne- that almost never happens. And I would say that as much as you can, we did succeed in that. It was probably the biggest success of the film. When it was finally screened, thousands of people showed up. They had to add another screening. All those people were there. It was actually a weirdly rare moment of kind of peaceful kind of, you know, uh, intermingling. Discourse, yeah. And everyone everyone embraced it. Yeah, and every, everybody had problems with it, right? Oh, yeah, everyone had problems with it. Uh, but... Yeah, everybody had problems with it, and everybody, like, I remember we, 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 we thought that that was a huge mark of success, that everybody had stuff they liked, and everyone was like, yeah, but you, I thought you were too focused on the other person, right? Which we were like, okay, well, that's good, because everybody basically <laughs> has something, you know, they don't like about it or thinks that they didn't get this or that, right? Which is probably... The c- complaints were usually pretty petty yeah they weren't like big they were like you said that there would be three jewish kids talking about this if there were three you know right. pro-palestinian <laughs> kids talking about this but there was actually two and like it was very like little like smallish things samer had some sort of issues with it samer wanted us to like i think address the actual political issues a bit more mm-hmm. which is a, g- a good thing right. that we kind of didn't we just let people kind of talk about it it's not really about that in a sense So when you say it's not about Israel-Palestine, Ben, you know, it's really about sort of students figuring out their stuff, right? Figuring out their politics. Is that you talking in retrospect or did you have that sense at the time? Because when I was watching it, you know, I'd I'd been part of uh, struggles of this sort, you know, working with SPHR um, at UBC and the kinds of battles that we were in were not nearly as as rowdy, I guess, as they were in Concordia. But me rewatching it, I got suddenly really, really worked up about, you know, the debates Aaron was having and about what the right strategy was. And it was hard for me to kind of remove myself. And so I was wondering, YouTube being there, being flies on the wall, did you find yourself being invested in one side or the other as people were having debates? Or did you have that sense of like 10,000 foot, like really this isn't about that, really this is about you know, people figuring out their stuff. I would say that from the beginning, it was difficult, but we tried not to. And we tried not Mm -hmm. to talk much about the issues with people, other than sort of asking them questions, what was happening, what was happening to Concordia specifically, because enough tension was happening at, on the ground there. Like we've had enough poster or like whatever, like, and, and like, we would talk about that kind of stuff. We would talk about, but we made a big effort not to. And then, I remember realizing in the editing suite, like, because we lucked into this great little story of the stu- of the election. I mean, didn't luck into it, but like, it had a real little arc. And the way it ended, and as we were editing it, we we did realize, and we were helped by the professionals who were around us that, like, oh, this is a coming of age story. This that that's actually what this is, and that's actually why it works. There were other attempts at like activism films around that issue that kind of didn't really work because they really did sort of take a stand one way or the other or kind of didn't work in the way that this thing worked, I I think. And I mean, we had all those naive ideas about like, we need to like make sure that like issues that people get dehumanized that everybody kind of has a voice and feels like 
you know, the people are treated as humans. And even if you disagree with them, you understand where they're coming from. Like you understand why Samer feels the way he feels. And you can understand why Noah, you know, when he says, you know, I've never been to a school with a single non-Jew. So now I'm here in this jungle and I'm trying to figure this out. You know, the big sort of urban downtown Montreal diversity. Even if you totally think he's wrong, you understand where he's coming from. To me, that was more important than anything and actually makes people think about the issue in a way that's probably actually has more longevity and more power than just like, here's the partisan side, that, 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 all the facts, 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 facts. You've used the word naive a couple times. I mean, why, why do you think that, is it naive or people think it's naive? Well, this idea of being objective has sort of been discredited. <laughs> like that, that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. That. And we sort of knew that at the time too. And you always had to be careful with saying that word. I would sort of say we try to present multiple subjective points of view. That's a good way of putting it. You know, you know what I mean? That, that, that we did have that thing of, okay, we have Aaron. He was our way in. Then, okay, through Aaron, we got to Sam. And then we were like, no, we, then we want somebody who's on the other side of this. And, you know, interestingly, in the context of Concordia, that other side was the one that felt like they didn't have a voice, right? That was sort of the in the context of Concordia, like the oppressed side from their point of view, which is kind of interesting. So we also had to gain their trust, right? And I think that's where having Ben and I together with our sort of mixed backgrounds was very crucial to winning over the people in the film. Because of course, in a film like this, the rapport that you have between you and the subject is 90% of you getting the story that you need and getting the footage that you need because you need access, right? And and you need unfiltered, unvarnished, mm-hmm. you know, stuff happening in front of you. I'm going to say I've got a, a question about the rest of Concordia because some of the parts of the movie that really resonated with me most were the kind of funny scenes where you interview people that are just not part <laughs> yeah. of this and they're like, no comment, like what are these people <laughs> doing? Um, and, and being a student activist of any sort, you quickly realize that you're talking about like, maybe 5% of campus and everyone else is like, get the fuck away from me. Why are you screaming at these people? What's the deal? Tell me a little bit more about how Concordia, the Concordia students that weren't part of this were reacting to everything that was going on here. People liked it at first. It was exciting. That was my impression. Of course, just my impression. Mm -hmm. Concordia, the geography of Concordia is very unique or was where everything went through this bottleneck. There's basically one building and that's where so much of the action happened in that funny little corridor with like, if you sort of remember the film, there's those escalators and that little corridor, like, yep. I don't know, 80% of people had to pass through there every day. So that's where everything was always set up. And then by the end with those sort of funny interviews, which I, I also find kind of sort of funny too, people did start to kind of get sick of it, but it definitely gave Concordia an edge and a kind of point of interest that like, you know, there's always the Concordia versus McGill stuff. And I remember at the time, I would like, wouldn't even have considered setting foot on the McGill campus. You know, it would have just been the sleepiest, most boring place like in the world <laughs> when like all this kind of like interest and action and frustrating and exciting things were like happening downtown at Concordia. As a kind of almost student myself and a, and a recent student, I, I was kind of proud that Concordia had that kind of energy. And I think a lot of people did. But <laughs> by the end, people were like the practical walking from class like to your classroom and being blocked by like some guy yelling about a swastika started to kind of bother people mm. <laughs> like for sure <laughs> and they definitely voted with their feet whatever at the end yeah 
What do you think this movie says about student activism? It's totally pointless. No. <laughs> no I mean, I'll just say, I'll let you have that one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, I think it probably says that it can have a certain kind of impact. You know, what is the goal of student activism? Is one of the primary goals is to raise awareness about some issue or another. Another big goal is to actually affect specific real world changes like divestment. Probably another one is to actually start, you know, be the sort of breeding ground for movements that then become known in the wider culture. So I, I think that all of those things happened to some extent over the course of this year through the student activism. But I also think it shows sort of what can happen if it goes too far for people. And, you know, in a sense, they were the victims of their own success. If you judge the success metric by, let's say, getting the word out about something, it's like it, it went too far for almost everybody. And then there was a sort of a backlash against that. And then I think a lot of that spirit got crushed, right? Like, I don't think Concordia is anywhere near what it was at the time in terms of being this sort of place for people to come, right? And and do this kind of activism. So in a sense, it is a bit of a microcosm of, of sort of what happens now even, right? Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of talking at each other. There's a lot of partisanship where you're not really trying to kind of work things out. You're trying to like push a certain kind of point. And sometimes, you know, those points are important and like, I don't think that's necessarily bad. But um, it definitely was a precursor to what sort of happened in the culture afterwards. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, think. No, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only place where this was happening, but the sort of Israel-Palestine debate on university campuses, another reason why the film was kind of successful is it wasn't just Concordia, right? It was like sort of happening all over the place and getting a lot of attention, you know, kind of set the tone for like our current sort of political discourse, which is obviously pretty dysfunctional. And definitely there were bubbles. We talk about bubbles now. People had their like kind of like information and media kind of bubbles. Mm -hmm. They had alternative facts for things and alternative terms for things. Um, and, you know, Sam and I spent a lot of effort, like read everything we could about it going all the way back. And that doesn't really help you. It makes it more complicated, right? It makes you realize that like the solution to these things isn't sort of sloganeering or yelling at each other or whatever it's like a very complicated deep thing that maybe people don't really have tolerance for anymore mm. and maybe this is the beginning of that type of intolerance or trying to win points off each other win media points because they were always calculating their media hits and like right. who's supportive who's not who's the enemy who's the friend that's what it felt to me if i would be critical of it it was interesting in the film to see how Concordia was pretty risk averse. But you said one of the professors was almost like happy about it because it was this learning opportunity. That's kind of unthinkable to me to th yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. They, they were like, it, 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 there was a bit of tension, but like, were they risk averse? I don't think Concordia was happy about it. I don't, I don't think Concordia wasn't that happy about the film. Like, they were nervous about it. When universities are a business, right? Their business model is to lose money on their local students and make a lot of money on international students. And Concordia is like the little guy, right? 
trying to make its mark and get more funding and all that stuff. So it was a thing because there was a, at that time, the school was getting a reputation that it was not a safe space for Jewish students, which is, you know, which is not something that is acceptable, obviously. Sam's right. There was definitely some nervousness, but also some kind of excitement because Dennis, whatever his last name was, I feel terrible about that, but um, he wasn't just a professor anymore. He was a big part of the administration. I forget his role, but like he would come to things and he would kind of like take an interest. And if I remember, this was kind of the turn for Concordia in a good direction for them because they were always like the school that like, I, I don't know if it made the cut, but I remember Dennis telling us that like, we're actually like profitable. And then Concordia really kind of the reputation went up from this point, some people saw that the interests and the excitement, and it's what we liked about Concordia. We went to Concordia, right? Like I wanted to go to a downtown university where the action was with big buildings and lots of like different kinds of people like running around. Mm -hmm. And McGill did not feel that way at all to us, like maybe wrongly or rightly to me. Like it felt like a pastoral kind of like beautiful little paths and like 200 year old buildings or whatever. And I had like no interest in that. And I think Concordia like did actually do quite well off its reputation as an exciting place. It obviously went too far and they, they were worried for sure. What do you think? Actually, I think one of you even suggested this to Mark. But if we were to show this film to student activists today, mm-hmm, like yeah. undergrads, people that were maybe as old as Aaron and, and others were in the movie, what would their reaction be, you think? I don't want to suggest that to my... I, I don't know. That's why I'd really be curious. I, I really hope you guys do that, because I'd really like to know. I have no idea. But I would love if you do it, like, especially Concordia students. Will they give a shit, or will they think it's laughable, or will they just think it's futile, or will they think it's romantic? I really don't know. My name is Haya. I'm in my last year here at Concordia. I'm majoring in political science and minoring in law and society. I'm Syrian. My whole family Syrian. This is Haya Batar. She is the internal affairs coordinator of the Concordia Student Union. That's the same CSU that you see in Discordia, the student union that Eve was a part of. Haya is also a member of SPHR, and like me, she also discovered Discordia pretty recently. She actually discovered it through SPHR. Yeah, this was back in September. So this is the beginning of the academic year. We wanted to get together and kind of get to know, first of all, what we want to do with SPHR. And we can't do that without knowing the history of SPHR and the power that SPHR has or had at that time on campus. And I briefly heard about the Netanyahu protest. I didn't know much about it. And our coordinator said, you know what, let's just watch Discordia. And we watched it and... It was, we were, it was just, it was an insane experience And so far as watching, seeing physically Concordia kind of not change, you know, the hall building, the mezzanine floor hasn't changed much, but also seeing the energy on campus. I've never seen it like this, where students were unafraid to take to the streets and occupy and be loud about it and not back down. And these were SPHR people. Some of them we actually know because they, they've now, uh, they operate NGOs in, in Montreal that work with Palestinian communities and the Palestinian cause. So some of these people, actually a lot of them we know personally or who have come to SPHR. So it's also really 
an out-of-body experience to see someone you know <laughs> 25 years earlier and they're on campus and they're doing all this stuff. And seeing how the CSU worked at the time and seeing the internal politics of that, it's definitely like a live time capsule that you're watching and it's really intriguing. Um, and I remember finishing that documentary thinking Palestine was never at the core issue of organizing between the CSU execs. And by that, I mean it, a lot of the CSU execs, specifically Mate and... Uh, some other execs really concerned with how they personally would be viewed mm -hmm. like as people or as a CSU exec and not that their personal views or how people view them shouldn't matter when you're organizing around the cause of liberation or a specific cause, whether it be about Palestine or anything else. And it's just unfortunate to see that personal politics were trumping the broader social movement so, and I remember thinking, I don't want to be like that if I'm ever in this position. Or if when I'm organizing as an activist or an organizer, it's for the cause. It's not about me or how this would affect me personally. Or are my friends going to hate me? Or am I going to be written out in newspapers? And I thought it was very weird that they were thinking this way. And I think that that's why they essentially failed to be reelected re again. And there was so much internal conflict between them. One of the things that we've been banding about is, is campus activism in a decline? Is it moribund? And, you know, we're a few years removed, so we're not in the thick of it. And so we think, okay, probably it is, but, you know, we're probably missing some things. At the same time, I got to say, like, this piece has been very, very hard to make because we've been trying to reach campus activists of different stripes at SBHR, at Hillel, at various student unions. We've started at York and U of T and mm -hmm. then TMU and now Concordia. And we've been like sending dozens and dozens of emails. Mark has probably tried 60 people like, hey, let, I want to talk about the state of campus activism. I swear to you, we're on like episode 72. It has been the hardest episode in our history <laughs> to book. Yeah. And so I go away from that thinking, oh my God, campus activism is completely dead. Yeah. But I don't know. Am I wrong? I mean, what do you think? My first answer to you would be, no, I don't think student activism on campus is dead. I think reaching out to activists across the country, especially when they're involved in something as radical as challenging empire or challenging colonialism, imperialism, especially even harder when you're on campus. A lot of activists, especially in the last few years, have been very distrustful of media in general, because unfortunately, typical like big brand name media companies always seek out activists and they ask them mediocre questions and then they twist the narrative and say, oh, look at these crazies who want to do all this and they want to do all that. And activists who've already put their their life, their image, everything on the line for a specific cause, now they get maligned on TV for a piece. And I wouldn't blame activists for not reaching out. And I was skeptical myself. I was like, I don't know what the ideology of this podcast is about, I don't want to be on a right-wing podcast, you know, <laughs> and be maligned or whatever, or be, you know, have someone be malicious against me. But but to answer your other question, I think there's a lot of student organizing on campus. I can give you examples right now at Concordia, the boycott of the sexual assault center, the SMSV boycott. A bunch of unions on campus at Concordia are actively boycotting the Concordia admin sexual assault center that's hosted by Concordia because Concordia wants survivors to sign NDAs. They want 
to silence them. They protect professors. There's a philosophy professor right now at Concordia who has several complaints against him, who's still working. And that's been happening for a few months and there's been media attention there. Occupying the mezzanine floor a few months ago, that got a lot of media attention. And it really shows students that students have power to literally sleep on campus with the lights on, with security being very annoying, with threats from admin for suspension, you know, doing this against all odds. And our external department at the CSU, we're organizing this year a lot around housing, inequality and job opportunities. And just uh, there's just been a lot. And I think it wouldn't be fair for me or anyone, I think, to dismiss that and say there just hasn't been enough student activism on campus. That's encouraging to hear. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the administration. Mm-hmm. Watching Discordia, it struck me that the administration, just like everyone else, was sort of like figuring things out. Like they reacted, but they didn't really have a plan. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to the filmmakers of Discordia. And one of the things that they said was that not only could stuff like this maybe not happen again around Israel-Palestine, the movie itself couldn't even happen because they said the university is much more PR-obsessed, much more litigious, much more concerned about their image and the image that they convey to possible donors. So they're more anxious about stuff and perhaps more, uh, they clamp down more on student activism. Yeah, what's your take on the university administration itself, the one that, you know, you deal with and what does it look like from your perspective now? Does it look any different than, than what you saw in the movie? Absolutely. So two points on that. First, I would say going back to whether or not student activism on campus has decreased or hasn't been as active, I would disagree. I think student activism on campus is still present, but there's much more caution from us as students just because the university has become way more litigious, way more PR obsessed. They're not afraid to call lawyers on students. They're not afraid to ruin a student's life. And that's something, especially if you're an international student, if you're a Palestinian and you have family literally in Palestine and you're here on a visa and Concordia sponsoring you or paying for your tuition, you're going to think four or five times before you even open your mouth and say, I want Palestine to be free or Mm. to even table or even join SPHR, right? Because absolutely the university has become way more litigious and way more PR obsessed because they are, at the end of the day, not an educational institution. They're a financial institution. They're here to make profit. They want students to pay money. And more importantly, they want donors to sustain the economy of the university. So obviously you have Zionist donors. And there have been many classes on Palestine, not just at Concordia, but also at McGill and across Canada that have been canceled. And professors that have been ousted or moved to other departments because they wanted to start a class on Palestine. They wanted like a Palestine 101, like something as simple as that. And that's been successfully lobbied against by donors. What's the relationship like between the current CSU exec and the school, the admin? Well, as a union, like we're here to protect students' rights as students, as workers, as people on campus. And again, because admin is out here to make a profit, they will do whatever needs to be done to really take advantage of us and exploit us to the best of their ability. And our approach to the admin is we deal with them when we absolutely necessarily have to. There's a very big, very amazing project that's about to be completed that it's fully CSU run, fully CSU sponsored. Admin has been trying to go against us on it. And we said, fuck them, we're doing it without you. I got to say, I'm so uh, jealous when you say all that because I went to school at UBC and our student union, the AMS, uh, would never, no one one on uh, council would 
would ever say anything like that. For the most part, I mean, the prevailing ideology of campus unions, that campus union, and I think most campus unions outside of maybe Quebec was like, you know, be an administrative union, play nice with the university, provide services, but not really politicize. It really frustrates me when, especially when watching this core idea, that this idea that the CSU can't be political, especially towards the end, like that bright wing slate mm-hmm. was saying, evolution, not revolution. Yes. And we're not, we're students first, not activists second or activism second. First, many things to say that, to say to that. First of all, me as Haya, as an Arab, anti-Zionist, whatever, I don't see myself as an activist because for me, this is my humanity. I don't have a choice. I wake up every morning and I have to defend mm myself to racists every day and dealing with that could be I can write a petition I can occupy hall I can be in the CSU and sure that can be considered as quote-unquote activism but to me that's unfortunately my way of life and it's not a choice and I think that's where the political essence of the CSU comes in we're a union there has to be a union because there's an admin and that also means sometimes we have to deal with admin as execs we have to be nice to them and we have to say yes please and thank you and that's politics like that is politics that's the nature of it but we can also say that we do all of this to their face and then we can organize separately and we only use them when we need them in the same way mm-hmm. that they use us when they need <laughs> us but hopefully we come out winning at the end and I think it's been slow and tough, obviously, because we're up against admin, we're up against the government, we're up against lobbyists, and we're unafraid and we'll continue pushing. And I think there's so much good to come out of this, and there has to be because I want to go back to my land, I want to be able to see my land, I want to be able to see my family. And that the same could be said for all indigenous people across Turtle Island and Canada and Palestine. And I think there's a lot of good to come, and I think admin should be afraid of us, and I think they are. That was Haya Bitar, Internal Affairs Coordinator of the Concordia Student Union and member of Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights. We tried repeatedly to invite someone from Hillel at Concordia, but they denied our requests. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what you hear, consider supporting our show. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we are made by Jay Coburn, Mark Epilonio, and Ren Bangert. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are done by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of a mini-series that we've been doing that looks at the relationship between activism and academia. The scholarly leads are Professors Leslie Wood at York University and Professor Sigurd Schmaltzer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thanks to both of them for their support and to others who have helped with research and advising, including Charmaine Khan and Susanna Mulvale. And thank you for listening. Till next time.